welcome uh, Dina Smeltz uh, from the Chicago Council uh, on Global Affairs. Uh, she's the Senior Fellow for Public Opinion and Foreign Policy there. Um, and for somebody like myself who's been following the Chicago Council's uh, uh, biannual reports on public opinion and foreign policy uh, since the late 1970s, uh, it was uh, really terrific when Dina came on board because th this uh, regular survey uh, of public opinion on foreign policy issues uh, was both essential and also sort of fusty. Um, and uh, so it was something everybody knew you had to have, but uh, the old team had, I think, uh, between ourselves, uh, run out of gas. Um, but Dina was hired uh, from the State Department, uh, where she had been the Director of Research in Middle East and South Asia Division from 2001 to 2007, and before that, uh, the Analyst and then Director of the uh, European Division uh, of the Bureau of Intelligence and Research uh, at the State Department, um, in which uh, context uh, she was in charge of all things uh, survey-related, uh, doing surveys uh, on all sorts of uh, issues, including Arab Muslim and South Asian re regional attitudes uh, about various things, um, and also doing some of the uh, early work uh, on public opinion in uh, transitional countries in Central um, and Eastern Europe. Um, her special area of emphasis is on post-conflict situations, and she bills herself as a combat pollster. So that Mister. means if you ask her a pointed question, you're gonna get a poke in the nose, I'm, uh, I'm guessing. Uh, in any case, uh, it's been uh, terrific to work with Dina um, and the council uh, on their uh, really extent, extensive uh, polling operation uh, over the past few years. And I want to invite you to uh, join me in giving her a warm South Bend welcome on the first cold day of the year. Welcome, Dina. Thank you. Thank you. I'm oh, going to stand. Say one one other one? thing, uh, or uh, Anika will be unhappy with me, but uh, we. Have, we're recording this session for rebroadcast as a podcast. And uh, Anika wanted me to remind everybody that in the Q&A and the discussion, be sure to project. Um, so with that, Dina, please. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike, for inviting me here, and to Anika for making it all happen. It's great to be here. Um, it's kind of handy that I have worked in post-conflict situations since we're heading into this election November 8th and might need some reconciliation efforts afterwards. Um, I work at the Chicago Council, uh, where, as Mike said, the Chicago Council has done this survey for 40 years and I just wanted to let everyone know that the data from every survey that we do is publicly available and we are happy to share with academic colleagues in particular. So please keep in touch after. Let me know if you'd like the data, where to find it. And, um, and so with that, I'm just gonna jump into the, the survey work. So usually uh, when we're presenting these survey results, there are a lot of questions about why does public opinion even matter 
for on foreign policy. But this year, because of the election campaign, it's been really relevant because terrorism, uh, the terrorist attacks have been up, which is raising fears of terrorism. Fears of Islamic fundamentalism are also up. The outcome of the Brexit vote showed that public opinion can still manage to surprise a lot of analysts and observers. And maybe most importantly, because one of the presidential candidates this year is challenging 70 years of foreign policy tradition built on alliances and um, cooperation with other allies. So I'm just going to quickly go over the, when I can figure out how to get to the next page. I'm just going to do this. Um, quickly go over the methodology of the survey. Uh, if you want more details, it's on page 37 of the report that you have. Um, but basically, it was conducted in June, between June 10th and the 27th. This was during the period when the primaries were still going on. There wasn't a, a nominee for each party yet. And uh, it's was conducted among over 2,000 people, was done online by GFK Custom Research. And uh, we can talk more about the methods later, but those are the highlights. And what the, the takeaways from the survey are that Donald Trump has managed to harness the energy of a certain segment of the US population that's particular, particularly discontent about immigration and to a lesser extent about trade and globalization. But the survey findings over time show that these criticisms and objections aren't really new. They've been going on and brewing for quite some time. And in the near term, it looks like that no matter who wins the elections, these public anxieties about immigration and about trade are going, and the economy are going to continue for the next president. So we asked this question of all respondents, regardless of who they were going to vote for president once the nominees were named, who did they really want to win the primaries? Who was their top choice for president? And both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, as you know, were able to position themselves as outsiders and gain quite a bit of traction among the electorate. So 34% of Democrats said that, they, that Bernie Sanders was their top choice as well as 27% of independents, and Donald Trump, 32% of Republicans and 15% of independents um, said that he was their top choice. And when we looked at, first we looked at the Hillary versus Bernie supporters to see uh, if what, what, the, what the differences were between them. And it was really interesting and quite surprising that we found very few significant differences, even on issues like climate change and trade, where we really expected to find it. And I think it's because if you were like me, you were expecting the people you see at rallies and um, at different protests with the anti-TPP signs, um, those were the people I thought supported Bernie Sanders, but actually it was a much broader group. Um, but when we looked at Donald Trump supporters versus other Republican um, candidates, we saw some big differences, not only between Republicans, but among, between Donald Trump's core supporters and the overall public at large. So that's what we're, that's why we kind of zeroed in on them to see, well, what, what was, what's this phenomenon all about this year? 
so to start, every year we ask Americans, we share them a series of about 20 different possible threats to the United States, and we ask them whether they think a particular threat is a critical threat, an important but not a critical threat, or not a threat. And so it, can everybody see that the columns are arranged by blue donkeys are Democrats, yellow stars are independents, red elephants are Republicans, and we used orange for the core Trump supporters. So if you look at the core Trump supporters, eight and 10 say that international terrorism, large numbers of immigrants and refugees coming into the United States, and Islamic fundamentalism are critical threats to the United States. They're all in the same ballpark, and uh, you'll see in the next slide, they all tend to blend together and then influence their views towards immigrants, specific immigrant groups. And Republicans overall are similar in the top threats, but they definitely differentiate as immigration being a third level threat compared to Islamic fundamentalism and international terrorism. And immigration is not listed as one of the top three threats among Democrats or independents at all. So as I said, the blended fears about terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism and immigration is really clear when it comes to attitudes towards Middle Eastern immigrants in the United States. Um, this percentage, these percentages show those people who said they have a very or some and somewhat favorable opinion of these different groups. So you can see core Trump supporters, only 15% have a favorable, favorable view of Middle Eastern immigrants in the United States compared to 40% of the public overall, 29% of Republicans, 46% of independents, and a majority of Democrats. And this also translates into Trump supporters more negative views towards admitting Syrian refugees into the United States, although only a third of Americans overall support taking in Syrian refugees, which is actually a figure that has been common for Americans even going back to the 30s. It's always about 36, 40 percent at most support taking in refugees. But there's a big difference between the core Trump supporters here and overall number. And similarly for Mexican immigrants in the United States, it's actually a little more positive, but the core Trump supporters are much more negative. This 60% overall number is actually an increase from the last time we asked this question in 2013, which was surprising somewhat to me, because I thought with all the rhetoric maybe it would depress uh, some people's views of Mexican immigrants, but I was heartened to see that actually 60% compared to 55% um, in 2013 have a favorable view. So this is probably not surprising given the other results I just showed you, but uh, 9 in 10 Trump supporters support expanding the 700 miles of border wall and fencing with Mexico, but Republicans overall also support it while uh, independents and Democrats do not. And overall, Americans are divided. On, it's funny, on this question, Americans are divided. And I think it's because we pretty implicit in this question is that the wall and fencing do exist already. Other surveys have asked, just do you support building a wall? And they find a majority of Americans opposed. So there might be something to that uh, expanding the wall versus 
assuming that we're building the wall from scratch. And so, and this has been true, uh, lots of polls that we have done on immigration. It's something important for the Chicago Council because in the Midwest in particular, we really need immigration for the economy and for our agricultural sector. And issues of enforcement are really important to Americans, I'm sorry, uh, to Republicans, while the issues of pathways to citizenship are really important for Democrats on the issue. When we have asked about packages that put them together, major there is bipartisan majority support, but then there's always questions of which item comes first, and so that's where the policy problems get difficult. But on this, just to make this, um, to simplify this graph, if you just look at these bars down here, this is the percentage of people who support undocumented workers that are working here should be required to leave their jobs and leave the country. And again, here the Trump supporters stand out from everybody else with a majority saying that they should be deported, um, where overall only 28% of Americans feel the same way. So immigration is clearly central uh, and a, a key point for people who support Donald Trump, the core supporters. Not necessarily everybody who says they're going to vote for him because people tend to vote along partisan lines anyway. But so this is just the core support, his committed supporters. On globalization, we see something similar, but to a lesser extent, only 49% of core Trump supporters say that globalization is mostly good for the United States compared to two thirds of Americans overall and majorities elsewhere. Um, when we asked specifically about international trade, the core Trump supporters are the least likely to say that trade has been good for, cons for uh, consumers like you, your own standard of living, and the U.S. economy. Majorities of the overall U.S. public say that trade has been good. What's in the report and what's not on this graph is that majorities of all partisan affiliations say that trade has been bad for American jobs and for job security. So I think it's kind of interesting that Americans are able to differentiate between the advantages and disadvantages of, tra of trade. They generally think it's good for their own for prices, for their own standard of living, for the U.S. economy, but not great for jobs. And other surveys show that they also say that it hasn't been great for wages, that wages tend to get depressed. So, okay, globalization and trade and uh, immigration, big issues this election. They seem like they are new and novel in, in the debate discourse now, but actually they're not, they're not new. These objections have been going on for quite some time and they've become more partisan over time. Um, starting in 2002, Democrats have become steadily less concerned about immigration to the point where only 27% of, of Democrats now say that immigration is a critical threat, which is interesting because between 1998 and 2002, there were really no differences uh, among these different partisan groups. Now, Republicans, on the other hand, have pretty much stayed fearful of immigration uh, this entire, since 98, and now are at 
the highest point um, ever saying that immigration is a critical threat. And you know, something I, I, that is often asked is whether leaders are reacting to public opinion or whether public opinion is reacting to political leadership. And it's hard to say, but there's definitely been a bump here. We don't know, you know, we can't establish it, whether it's causation, but uh, there's something going on with there's a little bit of a bump that Republicans are now more concerned about immigration. Okay, and then on globalization, also, um, these objections among Republicans on globalization really started around 2008. Between, in 2006, the difference between Democrats and Republicans on whether globalization is good was only five percentage points. And it's grown now to 15 percentage points. However, it's still majorities across the partisan um, spectrum that support globalization. They still think it's good. But to some extent, it's funny for me, I always thought of the Republican Party as the party that promoted trade as an engine of growth. And so I, I was surprised to find this long-term uh, lower numbers of Republicans than Democrats supporting globalization. Um, so on the broader issue of international engagement, Americans are more like-minded. Um, um, as you probably know, Donald Trump is kind of famous for calling some of our allies free riders um, who need to pay more of their alliance obligations and carry their own weight. Um, but even majorities of Trump supporters 60% say that the United States should keep its commitment to NATO or increase its commitment to NATO. And 6 in 10 overall support our commitment to NATO. Uh, majorities across the board also say that we should remain involved in world affairs. This is one of the long-standing barometers of international engagement. It actually goes all the way back to 1947. NORC asked it all the way back then. And between six, generally between six and seven and ten Americans have consistently said that we should stay involved in world affairs. And independents um, were on a downward slide, but actually they're even at almost six and ten. And across the board, Americans still say that maintaining U.S. military superiority is a, an effective way to achieve our foreign policy goals, as well as maintaining existing alliances and building new alliances. So to pull it all together, Donald Trump's hardline positions on immigration and criticisms criticisms of trade have resonated with his supporters. But these criticisms are not new. Perhaps this is just the first time a, in a long time that a candidate has been able and willing to talk about these issues in terms that um, give voice to average people, a certain segment of the US public that is really frustrated on these two items. Um, but since 2002, as you saw in, in the long-term trend, since 2002, Americans have expressed 
a fear of immigration and what it's doing to our society since 2008. There have been differences of opinion on globalization. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that these views are only held among a, major a minority of the American public. A majority of Americans actually say that illegal immigrants current work currently working in the United States should be allowed to stay. Only 4 in 10 overall see immigration as a critical threat compared to 8 in 10 among the core Trump supporters. And two-thirds say that globalization is mostly good. So while these objections to trade and immigration among the core Trump supporters are likely to persist in the short run, and they are likely to be something that the next administration is going to have to grapple with, but in looking at the longer term, and you'll see there's some uh, data breakdowns in the report, those demographic groups in the United States that are growing most quickly, which are your generation, the millennials and younger people, you guys are outpacing the um, baby boomers as the largest cohort ever in the U.S. Um, the non-whites and college educated, those groups are actually the most likely to express open attitudes towards immigrants, um, to trade, and to the world. So uh, in the future, there's going to be quite a different pattern among these attitudes. Thank you very much. Okay. So I'll keep the uh, queue uh, for questions or comments or uh, rebuttal. And uh, uh, following our uh, new tradition, um, we'll encourage uh, some of our Notre Dame undergraduates uh, to try to ask some of the, uh, the first questions. So uh, you want to all put your hand up at once talk over each other. Uh, remember, if you don't ask a question, one of the faculty are going to. So uh, you don't want to, you don't want, want to subject yourself to that. Please. Um, so you didn't actually speak about it in your presentation here, mm -hmm. but it's one of the graphs on page three. Uh, we looked at it today in one of my classes, and we noticed something interesting that in 2002, the spike for the Republican Party, so like, Right after 9-11, right. it's actually smaller than it is today. Right. I was wondering if you could speak to that, like, why you think that. Sure. I think, um, um, so over the past year, I think ISIS, uh, ISIS and uh, the terrorist attacks in San Bernardino and Orlando and, and recently in New York, but that was before this um was conducted, have really pulled up uh, Republican attitudes, uh, Republican fears about terrorism, and also about in, uh, attacks being done by insiders versus people from abroad. So that's really, I don't know why it's five points higher among Republicans now than then. That could just be within the margin of error. But the point of the graph is the trend is up as high as it has been since since that time of you know incredible trauma for the United States. So, if the I don't know if the terrorism graph is in here as well, but um, about seventy two percent overall are also uh, concerned about terrorism. But the real big jump in the numbers came 
on that question of Islamic fundamentalism. So we kind of just think that ISIS has brought that to a, a higher place in people's um, sense of threats than maybe al-Qaeda, just because a lot of this has been not just in the United States, but in Paris and, and Brussels and Turkey. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Emma. Uh, please. Uh, we were also wondering when we were in the conference, how did you define a poor Trump supporter versus just Republican in general? Yeah, sure. So we asked two different questions. We asked, um, I don't think I have the overall numbers. We asked people first if they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And um, we didn't ever report those overall numbers because we're a nonpartisan organization. We're not trying to predict the elections. We just wanted to kind of explain why people held the positions or supported people they did. But overall, about 9 in 10 Republicans are going to vote for Donald Trump. And about 9 in 10 Democrats are going to vote for Hillary Clinton in this poll, which was conducted in June. Um, and then, if you remember that, that initial slide, um, here, we asked people, regardless of your voting preference in that first question, who is your top choice? for president among the following candidates. And so we listed all the candidates, but then when we were looking at the data, because the sample sizes were so small for individual Republicans, we put them all together into Trump versus non-Trump Republicans. Does that explain it? Great, thank you. Um, Nisha? Uh, right, well, first, thank you. This Hi, Nisha. Super interesting. Um, uh, so I have a... I love, I just want to say, I love the title for figure 14, that across parties, majorities think America is the greatest, and it's very beautiful there. Yeah. Um, but, but I had two questions. First is that um, in figure five, you, you make this distinction between the public versus opinion leaders. Yes. And I wondered if there are other segments of the survey that are not reported here where you also found interesting differences, I'd just be curious to hear about those. And then I wondered also, given the very strong findings on Trump supporters and their preferences on immigration, if you're able, and I don't know what the GFK um, demographic battery looks like, mm -hmm. uh, if you're able to match that down to seeing uh, to what kind of exposure uh, Trump supporters or everybody in your sample has to immigrants. Right, we didn't ask that in our uh, data, but uh, so I'll answer your second question first. But Jonathan Rothwell, who works for Gallup as an economist, he has done this survey, this giant survey of um, looking at the Trump supporters versus everybody else, and found that in pockets of um, isolation, basically where there are no immigrants or people of color, that that tends to be where you might find a Trump supporter who happens to be white, um, for example. And they also tend to be less college educated than those who supported other candidates. And I think it's on page, um, 
early on in the report, there is a, a profile of the demographics of the core Trump supporters. And these also, yeah, page nine. And these also, Rothwell also found that in these same areas where once there had been a factory that employed everyone in that community and that factory had shut down, that people in those areas were also likely to support Donald Trump. And interesting, not interestingly, he did not find, and others have not found, that the core Trump supporter is more blue collar in income. They're not necessarily lower income than any other average American. But they tend to see, and our data show this, that, that they tend to see the prospects for the next generation as being not as economically viable as it is for adults today. So it's about economic mobility and to some extent some racial resentment, even when there are no mixed races or, or you know, even when it's not a mixed community. Does that make sense? And your first question about the elite survey. So we are actually in the field right now with the 2016 leader survey. So we should have those data maybe by next week. But in the and this report, we used the 2014 elite data and compared them to the 2016 general public data. And the other two things that popped out um, were uh, their attitudes on jobs. So uh, I forget in the graph that you were just talking about, I think that was on immigration. So on jobs, uh, for Americans, regardless of their political affiliation, Protecting American jobs is always one of the top, top, top priorities. Nine in 10 Americans say that. It's a very important foreign policy goal. But leaders do not see that as a top priority. It's at like 40% for, for um, public opinion leaders or foreign policy leaders. And I should explain, the leaders mean academics and think tankers and uh, government officials, people that work in the executive branch. Um, business leaders, media leaders, NGOs, labor union leaders. So that a mix of those kinds of people that we interview and ask exactly the same questions and compare their responses. So it was jobs, globalization also. Uh, you saw two-thirds of Americans support globalization. Well, leaders are even more in support of it, like 90-something percent. And um, Americans overall are more supportive of international agreements than foreign policy leaders. That's because they don't necessarily understand everything that's in an agreement or how it necessarily affects them. I think the way we word that question really underscores international and collective participation toward a goal. And since other countries are doing it too, Americans are, average Americans are likely to say, well, we should go along with it. So that and immigration was the other big one. And the immigration difference is really just on the Republican side, that the Republican public is very concerned about immigration, but Republican foreign policy leaders are not. It's a very low priority for them. So it's interesting how in the discourse, this small yet vocal minority of uh, Republican elites has really taken on that issue and made it a national debate. more about the anti-immigrant attitudes of the core Trump supporters, because in the popular discourse, there's kind of two narratives. One narrative is this is just a thinly veiled excuse for racism, right? It's just a, a proxy, there's only four of them. 
thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other narrative is, no, no, you've got to take this issue seriously, take, take these people seriously and their concerns seriously. And I realize that, I mean, you're nonpartisan, so maybe weighing in on that question yeah. can get dicey. But I wonder no, no. if there are any insights into maybe some of the, are there any data that aren't even clear that could give us insights into, you know, is this just racism or, um, yeah. Sort of an intelligent, careful analysis of what immigration might really mean. I think it depends on the on the individuals. I um, it, the the lesser educated Americans are more likely to be negative about immigration, but so are some educated um, Americans. And it, there are a couple different reasons that that I've seen come out in the data, not necessarily our own, but one is. Uh, a sense, and I think this also goes back to the core Trump supporters and where they live, a sense that um, the demographics of the United States are changing and they're being left out of the positive aspects of globalization. So that's one piece of the resentment, racial resentment type of factor. Um, another is that some people are concerned that the American society is being diluted, um, and particularly speaking English is something very important for Americans for uh, showing that immigrants are willing to integrate into American society, so that's one aspect of it. Um, another aspect is that whether it's true or not, some Americans are worried about jobs and think immigrants take away certain jobs. And actually, the data on that is mixed. Um, for what I've seen, the economic data on that is mixed. Uh, it, it depends, like so, like data overall. There's so many ways to look at it. So, um, and then the other is uh, just some people say they're always thinking about undocumented immigrants. I think when they're look, some people when they look at attitudes towards Mexicans in particular, and those people who view Mexican immigration through the undocumented inflows tend to really focus on the legality of and the enforcement of the laws, saying they're here, they broke the law, anyone else who breaks the law is held accountable. So I think there's some rational <clears throat> thought and not just uh, a f not racism on all counts. So hopefully that answers your question. Okay, is it uh, Kayla in back there? Um, I was wondering in the um, polls, like the one on Freedom Team, when it talks about immigration as a political threat, was there any distinction made between illegal immigration and just immigration in general? Yeah, so we haven't really. We haven't asked about when we when I showed you that slide that had Mexican immigrants and Middle Eastern. We didn't. Uh, differentiate whether they were legal or not. But we did ask about legal immigration and whether people thought we should maintain or increase it versus decrease it. And uh, the core Trump supporters are also negative on um, legal immigration. I believe it's 70%. I wrote it down, so let me just find it. Um, There. I, I believe 70% of um, core Trump supporters 
say that legal immigration should be decreased, and 56% of Republicans say that legal immigration should be decreased, and then only minorities of Democrats do. And again, for, uh, for many, probably of the same reasons, fear of jobs and, and immigration's impact on jobs. Okay, uh, Dan Lindley? Yeah, two questions. Um, first of all, when you say overall public or overall, I'm wondering how you measure that. Because first glance, it looks like you're averaging Democrats, independents, and Republicans. And if uh, you are, you're probably overweighting Yeah, it's not that. It's, it's not that. And also, independents aren't really independents, you know. They're secret partisans, we call them. They're most independent. 44% of independents generally in our data uh, are really really vote Republican or Democrat and use the term independent. But um, no, it's the, again, page 37 has all the, the um, data and it, it's just overall weighted by the CPS demographics from the census. Okay, my second question is asking you to extrapolate a little bit. You mentioned demographic trends. If you were to take those demographic trends and sort of figure out which vote for who and how often they vote, who doesn't vote after you reach a certain age, some people say this is the last election for kind of the old white man Fox News demographic. How many elections will it take for that to be true, if it will be true, that kind of thing? So I, I don't, don't have the modeling um, for that, but uh, by 2030, I believe we're supposed to be, uh, whites are supposed to be a minority for the first time, 2030 or 2040. But a, that, a lot of that really um, is, due, is dependent upon who turns out to vote. So uh, right now, Hispanics, for example, turn out in lower numbers to vote, but they, in the case of, uh, of electing Obama, they were really almost kingmakers in the last election. So it depends on turnout. And it also depends on whether the parties change their platforms and how they appeal to people. I mean, in some ways, so uh, Latinos and Hispanics generally vote Democrat, but in some ways, they are conservative. So many are conservative, religious, family-oriented, which could fall under the Republican um, general uh, tendency and, and the platforms and things that they support. So in some ways it depends how the parties react or, or what happens if there's a political realignment or not. But you know, they, the, for example, the GOP autopsy in 2012 after that election really showed that they needed to do some outreach among minority groups and non-whites and better educated to broaden their base. So a lot of it depends on that. Of course, then they nominated Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Paul. So looking at where that figure is relocated already, um, you see that in the early 2000s, about 60 percent of Democrats uh, thought immigration was a threat, and now it's about 25 percent. Um, what do you think contributes most to that? Um, oh, okay. So what, this was the long-term immigration as a threat. So this also comes down to a, a demographic to some extent. I don't have a firm answer. I've been asking a lot of people. One part of it is that um, if you look at the demographics, particularly among whites and white non-college educated uh, 
in past years, like a decade ago, there was a larger group of non-white, non-college educated in the Democratic, making up the Democratic base. But now it's the opposite. There's a larger percentage of that group making up the Republican base. And those voters, um, those people in the data tend to be more negative about immigration. So, that, so if they are shifting over to the Republican Party, that to some extent might explain some of the drop for the Democrats. Other things that I've just speculated on is after September 11th, when the government, um, Homeland Security, put on a lot stricter enforcement measures and a lot stronger requirements for visitors to come into the country, and seem to be a lot of allegations of racial profiling, for example. And so I thought maybe that also contributed to uh, some Democrats perhaps um, making them feel immigration is less of a threat and that some of those rules were maybe overstepping um, necessity. But that's totally my speculation. I haven't, I ask everybody you know, who's an immigration specialist the same thing. Because it's interesting, in 2007, George W. Bush was pushing for comprehensive immigration reform, and yet his party didn't seem, you know, his, the people supporting the Republican Party didn't seem to be following along in that case. So, yeah, hard to say. Do you know? Does anyone else have any ideas? It's a rational response to reverse to immigration. Starting in 2005, we have negative immigration in this country. Yeah, but it didn't, so, we've, we've, thought about that, but it didn't quite map onto that. Yeah, we now have negative, we have zero inflows. And also Americans aren't that aware of it, but that could be. Yeah. Could, could it be a response to the Republican anti-immigration rhetoric? In other words, like you dig in your heels if you're the two partisan, if you're a <laughs> yeah. polarized society and you hear your other side saying it's really a threat, well, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm on the I, other side, I don't think I think for sure in these last couple of years in that. So I didn't mention that's a, you can see it though. If it, there's a 40 percentage point difference now. That's the widest it's ever been in all of our surveys. So it's at a historic high. So yeah, I think for sure there's some entrenchment on both sides now among political leaders too. So, um, but yeah, so those are some, some ideas for why that might be. Now, it was interesting, too, because in the 90s, Bill Clinton actually was tightening down on immigrations. And you see the 98 to 2002, everyone felt the same way. So, yeah. Thanks. Well, I might start to add that to my, um, to my presentation as context for these questions. Uh, Carrie. I have two in my mic. Um, sure. So the Dan first... is already established. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunate. Uh, so one of the things that I found most interesting, uh, I guess one one is going to ask you to speculate again, and then um, the other is more of a technical question about, about the survey. Um, so there's there's sort of one of the things I found most surprising about this about this was that there is broad agreement on foreign policy and American engagement in the world amongst the American public. Um, but what stood out to me is that there have been, in the last five or six years, a series of very high-profile fights amongst the elites on foreign policy issues. Um, New Start comes to mind, uh, the Iran deal, what to do about Syria. There's There's been a big fissure amongst elites. And so I was wondering if you might be able to explain that. 
you might be able to speculate on why that exists when it's one of the few things that the American public does in the week. Um, why, why we would have this fraction um, I don't necessarily know that I can speak for the political, you know, the po the political elite, and uh, just to say that there are a lot of in there's. It's not uh, public foreign policy is not made by referenda, and so um, people ask this about trade all the time. Your numbers show that. Americans support free trade. So why is Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, why are they bashing the TPP? It doesn't look like they have to. Well, because it's not really up to the average American to uh, debate or to, to make that, to sign those trade agreements. So there's a lot of interest groups. There are a lot of different politicians that influence the way uh, politicians on Capitol Hill work. What I can say that's based on public opinion is that, in general, on foreign policy issues, Americans have been nonpartisan, meaning that across all parties, they generally support um, this kind of alliance-based uh, international cooperation and keeping a strong military. But lately, it's only been in the last decade or so, we have actually seen a lot of the partisanships that go on in domestic policy that we find in public opinion on domestic issues has now seeped into foreign policy as well. Okay, my second question is um, some of the confidence intervals for these pieces. So your overall confidence interval is about the highest we've had with a survey sample of a little just over two Right. We tested but, by question, by sample size for each question. Yeah, but I mean, for, for Donald Trump's voters, you've got an N of like 345, I right. think. So that, that confidence interval balloons pretty quickly. Right. No, we, like I said, we tested the margins for each and every question and each and every result that we... Okay, so everything that's reported here is... Is significant, statistic. yeah, unless we say it's not. Yeah. Okay, uh, Elizabeth? Thank you. Um, in looking at figure A, and based on what you said before in the response to Paul's question, would you argue that because uh, millennials, non-whites, and college-educated voters tend to be more open to um, the issue of immigration, and some polls have even specifically shown that they tend to be more anti-Trump, that this has fueled a greater recent support for the Democratic view, and only thus is, could be an explanation for why that divide between the Democratic and Republican view has been so great? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I just didn't catch the first yeah. part. Um, like I know you argued before that millennials tend to be more open to immigration. And could you say that because of that reason and because some of the other polls have shown them also to be more anti-Trump, that that could be used as um, an argument for why there's a greater Democratic support on the Democratic view for um, immigration? Yeah, certainly you can, but also... Um, I think it's in the back. Yeah, so look on page 40 in the back. Just the Democratic Party is so much more diverse than the Republican Party in general. But yes, so, and one part is that young, there are more millennials in the Democratic Party. But there's, a, it's not really that, let's see, we don't have the ages here. It, it's surprising that across the board, there are a lot of young people who vote Republican as well. I think it's more, um, the big differences we see are on the racial composition. 
So if you look, Republicans are 82% white, non-Hispanic, versus 49% of Democrats. So that's a huge issue, huge difference. But yes, as, as um, and then to some extent, if you look at, um, no, it doesn't, sorry, I was going to say if you look at education, but it's not, uh, Republicans still have more, slightly more college graduates, slightly. That might not even be outside the margin of error. But yeah, so it's really just that the um, Democratic Party has become much more diverse, and also that is since the 70s when civil rights was passed uh, in 68, then that was the first time that the parties re had a giant realignment that the Southern Democrats actually shifted to Republicans at that point. So that was the first time there was a realignment, and now that has been growing over time. So speaking of the diversity within the uh, Democratic Party, um, I have this uh, nostalgia for Bernie Sanders. And I wonder what the responses to a lot of these questions would look like if you, instead of calculating core Donald Trump supporters, mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, use the metric of core Bernie Sanders supporters. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth suggests that millennials uh, and probably Sanders would be uh, less, uh, you know, concerned about immigration. Although I'd be curious as to uh, what core uh, Sanders supporters would say on immigration. On uh, free trade, though, uh, I wonder, matter of fact, I don't wonder, I think I've seen the data on this. Uh, Sanders supporters are probably a lot closer to uh, Trump supporters uh, on the, uh, the various free trade questions. So I don't know if, you know, when you guys mm -hmm. were sitting around the office on, you know, late on Friday with the, the beer out, whether you ever recalculated uh, the uh, core Bernie Sanders and what that would look like, uh, especially compared to the uh, Democrats and the Republicans. So, um, no, when we set out to write this report, I wanted to explain this outsider phenomenon, even that Bernie's kind of an outsider, but not really, but... Um, in terms of his positioning himself as a non-establishment politician. So I thought we were going to really just hone in on these two uh, unlikely candidates who did quite well in the primaries. Um, but no, on, at least on the questions that we asked, there were only two places where the Sanders supporters differed greatly or significantly from Clinton supporters. And one was on whether the next generation will be better off um, than adults were. today. They were lower, but not that much lower. So I can tell you, um, I just have to find the question. Uh, the Trump supporters were the lowest on that question. And it might take, uh, but for example, and they are, and more millennials do support Sanders and other supporters, but he still has a generally white, uh, the constituency was more white than Democrats overall. Um, so I have to find that one. But And then on the TPP, I expected to find huge differences, but 53% of Sanders supporters support the TPP, which is huge. 
And there's so really, oh, and the other thing was we asked a question about is the United States the greatest country? One of you guys pulled out that graph. And the Sanders supporters were the least likely to say the U.S. is the greatest country. Um, the question, I really should read the question because it's not fair to just say. It, the question is, some people say that the United States has a unique character that makes it the greatest country in the world. Others say that every country is unique and the United States is no greater than other nations. Which of you is closer to your own? And only 41% of Sanders supporters versus 61% of Clinton supporters said the United States is the greatest nation. And you know who said it was the greatest of all? <laughs> The Trump supporters, 73% say, already think America is great. So that was interesting, too. But well, yeah. I'll, one campaign promise delivered. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> here, I found that other one for you, Mike. So the, the um, Sanders supporters are 57%. 57% uh, of core Sanders supporters say that the next generation of Americans will be economically worse off compared to 41% of Clinton supporters, but compared to 70% of Trump supporters. And that makes sense. I mean, that is the generation, so yeah. Yeah, so we were really surprised. And again, I think it goes to, uh, it demonstrates that those people who turn up, those activists who turn up at protests and rallies, uh, really make a difference in, in the way uh, a, a core support group is perceived. But maybe those are the real committed supporters, those people who turn up at the rallies, other than the sort of passive supporter who wanted him to win. But yeah, I had nostalgia for him too. How much of that might be because there were really only a few miles over So the Republicans had 17 people this year. Um, and so, you know, there are four Trump supporters as opposed to a Rubio, Cruz, Jeb Bush. You know, you had all these other major names. And yeah. So you're, you're allowed to, Republicans were able to kind of select based on a a very, you know, a, a broad range of policy choices. Mm -hmm. But you had Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. So, you know, if there had been a third other candidate in the process, um, there was Martin Malley. Well, Martin okay. Malley. I mean, <laughs> well, what's his name? <laughs> um. So how much? How much? I mean, but we only Bernie have Sanders, two candidates you know, that. I, I well, mean, the core Bernie Sanders. I guess what I'm asking is, how much of that core Bernie Sanders is like? I've supported Bernie Sanders in the primary. It's like an artifact question, right? I supported him in the primary because <clears> I didn't want to support Hillary Clinton. Versus, I supported him in the primary because I was really excited about him. Well, yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I was just saying. That the people who turn up at the rallies and who are activists are going to have a higher level of support. But, but people who voted about you know, Bernie Sanders supporters, those people who were in those pull down positions, maybe 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 right. Um, but well, these people. Yeah, it's I, well. No, I think we were trying to get a sense of who did you want to win the primary, which is more like an average voter than the people who are committed Bernie supporters. So we're just trying, you know, these are at, we don't even, we don't even uh, filter by very likely to vote or whether they're registered. These are average Americans in the whole country. So of the whole country, of all Americans, um, 
those numbers that I put up supported uh, Bernie Sanders. So 18% supported Donald Trump, I can't remember, 15 maybe, supported Bernie Sanders. So that's the sample that we were trying to describe. Um, ben? Uh, Thank you for your presentation. Sure, you're welcome. Uh, this refers to the issue of trade and immigration at this party contributes to the current division of America. Uh, my question might be beyond the scope of this research, uh, but what is Chicago Council's suggestion or recommendation to deal with the negative impact of globalization on average Americans' lives? Uh, while enjoying the positive aspects of globalization. I don't know whether that will be ever possible. Do you have any uh, opinions about that? Yes. I, I also just wanted to quickly go back to your point about millennials. They, um, I will say we're trying to uh, tease out whether there's something really special about millennials or whether they're just like, younger people in every generation. And so far on foreign policy issues, they seem like younger people in every generation in that they see fewer threats and they see, um, yeah, they just feel more, they see fewer threats around the world and they are more likely to support cooperation, less likely to support use of force. But as people go through life stages, we have seen in other generations that that changes. But I think on domestic issues, it could be a whole different ball of wax. On your question, so that's kind of, I'm a public opinion researcher, not a public policy specialist. But the one thing that I do see in the data and just uh, think about a lot is that I think we really need a national strategy for how we're going to deal with the digital revolution and its impacts on on our economy and people's jobs. And um, I don't think, and, and even to be even 30,000 feet higher, that the political elite have got to pay, start paying attention to some of the average people's needs and not have such a disconnect, especially on globalization and trade. So I think, and, and part of that is an education issue too, get, making sure that people are equipped for the kinds of jobs there are today. So a lot of our public education has a long way to go. So that's my own personal answer. I don't have any data-based answer for that. Do you? No. <laughs> the, the queue is open. And if you want to uh, prevent me from asking a second question, uh, speak now or, or ever hold your <laughs> Or you can come oh, after. The hands are, uh, are zipping up. Uh, Elise? Is, I'm Emma. Oh, uh, Emma, I'm sorry. I just have a question about the geodemographic yeah. voting that you did. Yeah. Was there any um, official data on the split between metropolitan people and people in more rural areas? Yeah, great question. So we um, we have this uh, a bunch of researchers who work on global cities at the Chicago Council, and we actually added in for the first time the MSAs. And we, normally we ask urban, rural, suburban, but that is subjective. You're just asking people to describe where they live. So this year we put in the MSAs, but we haven't yet analyzed those yet. Will that become available? Somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Probably in December. We're probably going to release all the data in December. Carrie. Uh, So I'm really curious, your your last your response to Sophie and 
highlighted something for me that's existing in the data that I that I didn't see before. Um, and it's that Trump supporters are no poorer than right. their Republican counterparts. No, they are Republican counterparts have a higher income than everybody. Poorer, but yeah. Trump supporters are no, no poorer, poorer than, than everyone else. Than average Americans. Um, and so it, it wouldn't be fair to characterize them as the, the victims of globalization. Right. Not all of them, but some who, like I described, that Rothwell described, who live in these areas in the Rust Belt, for in particular, who where the economy has dried up because they're not doing mining anymore, or they closed a factory or a plant. Those are the people that Rothwell has found. We don't have the data to find those. Right, but logically you would think that if you live in those areas and your paint factories close down and you're struggling economically, then you would have lower income. Right. No, but not if you had a factory job and you have a pension and you were part of a union and that's was that was the last generations. Um, so the explanation then is that these are people who are living off their pension, have seen the factory shut down. Not all of them, but that's the kind of person because, as I said earlier, the key variable for us was not like your income level. The key variable was whether people thought the next generation <clears throat> had better or worse prospects than the one today. So it's that my kid can't do as well as I have done because the same kinds of jobs aren't available to Yeah, them. but I'm looking for concrete impacts on somebody's life, not just like you're feeling about it. Well, this is an attitudinal survey, so we don't, it's not income, it's a feeling that I'm being left behind. There's been a ton of articles about this. Um, uh, Rothwell's is a, the, one of the best ones, but the feeling that these people are being left behind in an automated um, economy, and that there's all these new groups coming, growing in America that aren't like me, and I'm resentful, and nobody cares about me. Those are the sort of combination of feelings that have been coming out of other studies. We don't have that data in ours. We only have income, which was not a predictor. Only this sense that the next generation isn't going to be as well off as adults are today. So the, the importance of subjective expectations isn't unique to this. Remember, you know, Peter Fever and Chris Delphi right. and whoever their third co-author was, when they took on, you know, John Mueller's famous right. argument you know, about war presidents and public opinion, yeah. claimed that the, the, the key variable was not, you know, the duration of the conflict or the accumulation of casualties, but it was the subjective expectation uh, of victory that right. supposedly... and it was going to be short, li uh, it yeah. wouldn't be a long term... But the controversy around Fever and Gelby was that this, this could then be manipulated by elite. Well, and that is what Donald no Trump did. It. it was by the Bush administration. And, and you can say the okay. same about yeah. Donald Trump. <laughs> Perhaps Peter the controversy was that Peter, Peter then went to go work for the Bush administration to do it. Um, but, you know, so, so I guess what I'm, what I'm sort of curious about is that this, this expectation can be manipulated of by elites. And this, this subjective feeling of the next generation is not going to be any... Do, do better than I am, or it has you know, worse prospects, um, is not rooted in empirical reality. Because the next generation doesn't seem to feel this way, 
right? Millennials don't feel No, this they way. feel, they kids. do also feel that way. Just not as much as Trump supporters, and they're younger, so they have, it's a different, it's a different grounding in their perception. But I think Donald Trump has, whether accidental or deliberately, managed to completely voice this concern in a very public way, and, well, that's, why he's, he's I don't understand, concern, but I'm. But the concern is not rooted in people's ex, like reality and experiences. People's income has not dropped, right? Right. Their, their income, they're not. They're not poorer than anybody else. No, it's their expectation. And so they're my. So I guess the the question that I'm leading up to is why do they feel so differently than what their surroundings and their empirical reality tells. There's a lot of different, uh, there's been so much work on this in the past year. There's a lot of different um, studies that have been done. Some people point to authoritarianism. There's questions you ask about parenting, and then they've made an index, and this is an authoritarianism index. And peop Some people say that Donald Trump supporters happen to fall into that category that has an authoritarian bent. They like order, convention. Um, stability, and uh, so that's one one uh, item that has come up in different analyses. Others have come up with racial resentment, and then the one I like the best is Rothwell's study because it's such a huge study, and he looked at a variety of um, indicators and found it's yes, it's racial resentment, and it's also this economic dislocation, but not subjectively. It's in these isolated pockets where there have been factories that have dried up and there are no jobs anymore. So you should look it up. It's a Jonathan Rothwell Gallup study. There's really short uh, pieces written on the Monkey Cage blog that aren't as long as his piece, but well, that's it. I, th I find that to be the best one out there. I like that better than the authoritarianism scale based on how you parent. So. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I'm interested in the figures on 14 and 15, cases 14 and 15. Um, uh, I'm just curious. I have an alternative um, explanation for it. I'm just curious. Great. Like, Page. You, sorry, pages or figures? Uh, pages, sorry. Pages. Um, it just seems in general, Democrats think less th things are less threatening. Yes. What topic is everything is less threatening? Yes. Um, at least based on how I'm guessing you ask yourself, is this thing a critical threat? Right. It's a battery. Yeah. Yes. Um, so is just the interpretation then of the graph of fundamentalism or terrorism or immigration just in general, Democrats, everything is less threatening? So they're going to see them as less threatening as well? No. Um, or, is, think... there, is there a way to like control or say, given that these people or this group? So I say no because uh, immigration, so we look at it, the, how people rank them within those categories because of that. Um, so to try to get away from uh, the exact percentages, but to look, the top five threats for Republicans are these, the top five threats for um, independents are these. So independents are the least likely to see threats, more so than Democrats. I guess it depends on the threat. but. Um, like, look at nuclear proliferation's number two for independence, but at only 57%. And 
nuclear proliferation is even lower for Democrats, but it's 60%. So the independents are even lower on the threat scale. But, but number four, climate change for Democrats, that doesn't even place in the top like 10 for Republicans. So I would say perhaps except that there are key points that actually people differentiate depending upon their partisan affiliation, which ones place higher than others. Nisha? I just wanted to ask for... And, and let me just finish. So just, no, no, I just thought of it after you. Um, in general, Republicans tend to um, place a greater emphasis on national security issues and they see more threats and they also are more supportive of using force and projecting force abroad. Democrats just fundamentally, philosophically support multilateralism, collective action, less likely to support the use of force, but more likely to support peacekeeping um, missions. So that's something that kind of informs their views overall. Nisha? If you don't have it in the survey that you conducted, if you know of other surveys, if you were to do it somewhat differently and include domestic and international threats, how do things yeah. shake out? So we have um, immigration, you could say, is both. Climate change is both. Uh, climate change isn't a good example, but um, trade is kind of both. Um, and jobs is certainly domestic, when you say protecting U.S. jobs, it's usually domestic comes first. So, and, and other polls have found that, that too. Is by party affiliation? Not, not, not for the public, not really, no. Climate change is the one standout for Democrats. Immigration is the one standout for Republicans in terms of threats. Um, we did ask something interesting this year. It's nothing, I say it has a domestic element because we asked whether people were more fearful of being a target of terrorism versus gun violence, and um, Americans were somewhat more concerned about terrorism, but I thought they would be much more concerned about gun violence than terrorism. Um, let me find that one really quick. Are you worried that someone you know will be the target of gun violence, 53% overall? You or someone you know will be the target of a terrorist attack, 44%. Um, but among Democrats, 62, so it's six to four, say, gun violence, but for Republicans, it's um, an equal probability, which to me is crazy for both of them because the statistics of being a target of gun violence are so much higher. Can but that's five just. Experimental treatments on that? That, it, uh, that, it, that one is was not an experimental treatment, but we have several experimental treatments in the data. No, we, that would be, yeah, that would be a good one to look at. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good one. We have, um, we asked. I was just talking to Deborah earlier about an experimental treatment we did with climate change, the wording of climate change versus global warming, and that people tend to be more concerned about global warming than climate change, and I'm not sure why, and it's happened several years, and John Krosnick at Stanford has also found the same thing, so, um, but that was one of the fun experiments we did.
Uh, James? Yeah, two questions. So I like how you decided <coughs> leaders versus public yeah. on the immigration. What if you looked at the top five critical threats desegregated <laughs> by leaders? What do leaders yeah. think is important? They certainly don't think immigration the way up there. Uh, I'm not going to remember uh, off the top of my head. Well, actually, I know it's terrorism, nuclear proliferation. Those are the top two. Climate change is for Democrats as well. Um, and immigration is not at all for Republican leaders. But I can't um, recall off the top of my head. I think I remember in previous surveys, you had questions about the rank of foreign policy compared to domestic issues, what the American people thought about that. So you'd have you know, jobs or environment yeah. or whatever. What's your feeling about that? We have, we've asked about... Um, it's the same as usual. So we asked which are, that one is the goal battery. So it's whether specific goals are very important, somewhat important, not very important, or not important at all for achieving US foreign policy. And um, jobs is always at the top. Let me see. Protecting US jobs is 73%. But this year, it's actually tied with combating international terrorism at 72%. Um, and the other high one was nuclear, preventing nuclear proliferation, 67%. And attaining energy independence is 64%. So that's also interesting because attaining energy independence is very important for Americans, but climate change and limiting global warming, not so much. But it seems to be that if you tied the two together, then perhaps there would be more support, you know, that could be used as a messaging uh, for doing that. So that was one thing that came out of our data, too. Okay, so we've had an explosion of late questions. Normally, towards the end, things peter out. Uh, we have uh, Michael, Elise, and Ali. And uh, for Ali, I'd, I'd like to uh, get them all in so uh, we have time before uh, we, we shut up shop here. So. Maybe what I'd ask is uh, that Michael, Elise, and Ali ask their questions, and then we'll let Dina respond to sure. you by way of uh, closing remarks. Sure. Uh, and then that way, we'll uh, uh, everybody will have their uh, their opportunity. So, Michael, please. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, so, I'm looking at page 22 where um, it talks about TPP, um, and I was kind of surprised that half of Trump's core supporters disagree with him on one of his two major issues that he talks about all the time. So I was wondering if you looked into that any further and kind of found reasons why half of his core supporters might uh, actually support the TPP. Yeah, it goes back to the same issue of uh, the people you see at the rallies and the Trump activists aren't the same as the people who say we, we would want him to be the presidential candidate. So this is... Uh, there's only so much we can do with data, so we were aggregating, we were looking at, we wanted to focus in on those people who really supported Donald Trump himself, not just that he's a Republican, so we're voting for him. So that's of that group. Um, so again, the important thing is not necessarily to look at the numbers, but how they fall in the range, and they're the least likely of all the supporters to support the TPP. But in general, we've found this over time. Americans support trade. They support trade agreements. Now, if you threw in there, the TPP is going to have this impact on jobs. Other people say it's going to 
create better prices for products, which do you prefer, then people might say they don't support it. So it's really a lot of it depends on the wording. We just like to do a straight TPP. People don't know what's in the TPP, so it's not really an informed opinion. But this is their general sense on a range of questions is to have a very pro-trade inclination. So to so I know it is surprising that half and fifty-three percent of Bernie supporters support the TPP too. Elise? Yeah, so I was just looking at the different trend graphs and how like approaching an election year, uh, the trends seem to like diverge as Republican Democrat on issues that are important. So like immigration and um, things like that. Would do you think that this um, divergence in like Democratic and Republican opinion are more due to the election or prevalence of the issue in society? And did you see like similar divergence in critical issues in like previous elections? So like in two thousand eight with like the economy or twenty twelve with like Medicare and like um, like um, socialized healthcare? Did you see a similar trend in those types of issues? And did they go back to normal after the election or go back together? Okay, um, uh, no, so that was kind of the point of my presentation. These are not new to this election, these divergences on globalization and, and immigration. They have been there for quite some time. I think it's because comprehensive immigration has been attempted uh, to get into legislation and it's been failed so many times that uh, just over time the problem is aggravating. and. Um, so I think that's why there's some divergence. But I, certainly these, you could argue that the immigration issue has become so important in this election that it has hardened and deepened people's views on those two issues. But in previous elections, we don't, the economy is, people vote along generally in most elections, and this one might be different, but they generally vote along partisan lines, and your partisan affiliation usually comes from your parents, not me, but... <laughs> but in general, most Americans, and the state of the economy. So if people think the economy is doing well, usually the incumbent administration has an advantage. So on the economy, um, people seem to think America is going on the wrong track, and there is a disconnect between what economists say and what people feel about the economy, and Trump supporters are the least positive on the economy. So, but I haven't, we don't, we didn't really ask about measures of the economy in this poll. And in Medicare, all Americans support it. I think Trump has been really strong and smart in saying that he won't reduce Social Security or Medicare because um, he's speaking to what average Americans want. I think he's also really strong when he criticizes her 30 years of experience being, what did you achieve in those? 30 experiences, just by the way. But, um, and healthcare has been really interesting because since Obama, healthcare used to be a really top issue that people didn't want, uh, that people supported universal healthcare, but now that it's become politicized, we see partisan divides on it. But we haven't asked about that in, in a couple years now. Ellie? So, Ellie? so um, I just had a question about the divide um, in terms of farmer fundamentalism and terrorism. Um, I was wondering if you had any insight on how the millennial counterpart of Democrats um, was contributing, because I sort of thought that most millennials, when they're thinking about terrorism and its form of fundamentalism, all like the political awareness is coming from a post-9-11 perspective. There is no, they have no pre-9-11 
yeah. global awareness. And yeah. so maybe there's less shock value from yeah. That's interesting. We haven't broken it down to that level yet, but um, yeah, I don't even have, uh, I can mean, okay, so as a surrogate, we could just see what the Sander supporters are on terrorism. Again, they're lower on everything. Uh, they're 20 percentage points lower in thinking combating international terrorism is an important goal. And they are not really much on that one. Uh, 12 percentage points less likely to say international terrorism is a threat, but they're about 10 percentage points less likely to say everything is a threat. So yeah, I guess I can't answer your question yet, but you know what? You can take my card and I will run that for you and we can see. Certainly makes some sense that, uh, and given that their openness to the world and to other, uh, to a multi-ethnic America seems like perhaps there would be more differentiation there. Okay, um, I have two more people on the list and a little bit more time. Uh, I'm going to recognize uh, Carrie and Ben Dennison for the last two. Mine is easy. Um, this, I, I just have a straight question about whether you included questions about voter information levels and voter political awareness in your survey. Yeah, so we... Um, this time we just asked, we did ask and found some differences between those who followed these foreign policy issues closely or not. And, and um, I think Josh Busby wrote up a piece on, on that data, which we can send you. Um, but they're, they hold more open versus closed opinions on foreign policy, basically. We generally don't because we um, are interested in what average people think regardless of what their levels of information are. Again, we're dealing with the overall American public. And uh, and there are a lot of other polls that show Americans aren't that informed, so we're not going to really add much to that in this survey. Plus, we have limited real estate and what we can ask every time. I just wonder, yeah. because a lot of the elite messaging literature, you know, is dependent upon, or at least re responsive to, Voter information awareness. Right, like the more salient. Counterintuitive, right? That yeah. The more aware you consider yourself to be, the more susceptible you are to elite messaging. But we're not looking at that in in uh, in these data. But also, we look at uh, education. Doesn't make much of a difference for 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 one variable on the foreign policy issues, except that they, in the way you would think they were, that people are less are more tolerant, less afraid of engaging with the world, the more educated they are. But um, salience and like, how much they follow the news is kind of a, a better variable for us because... I mean, do you ask about that? Yeah. And like where they get their news from? No, we haven't asked that in a long time because we don't have enough. There's only so many questions we can ask. But this time we did ask how closely they follow domestic news and international news and looked at things that way and found the relationship you would think. Well, we have no limit on how many questions you can ask at the end of this <laughs> seminar. Uh, but we do only have the lease on the room uh, until <laughs> 6 o'clock. So uh, before I ask you to uh, join me in thanking Dina for uh, a terrific presentation, two quick housekeeping uh, 
matters. Uh, one is I want to thank our colleagues in the uh, Rooney Center for American Democracy, who were the uh, co-sponsors oh, of this great. event. Rooney will only work with us when we bring in some uh, really terrific talent. So, great. Dina, they, uh, they were willing to, uh, to work with you uh, or work with us on you, but nobody else. So we appreciate their uh, uh, support. <clears throat> Secondly, uh, this is a big week for NDISC. Uh, on Friday at noon, uh, Victoria Coates, who was a former speechwriter uh, and ghostwriter, I guess, to Donald Rumsfeld, and was uh, Ted Cruz's hmm. national security advisor um, in the Republican primary, um, is uh, speaking on campus at noon over at the IEI building, Carol Sandner Hall, uh, and we're buying lunch. So uh, for those of you who the, uh, uh, the uh, pure intellectual aspects of an endless seminar aren't enough to get you on that side of campus, uh, there'll be uh, more material uh, rewards, and that'll make uh, Carrie happy. Uh, so, Dina, uh, uh, thank you very much uh, for making the uh, long trip down. Uh, I'm gratified that we were able to uh, broaden your horizons. Being in Chicago, Absolutely. you don't get out much. And so this is uh, her first trip to uh, South Bend and Notre Dame, but we hope it's uh, by no means your last. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.